God gave us a sense of smell. We have the ability to enjoy pleasing smells and we have the ability to be repulsed by disgusting smells. Generally, that which is wholesome and healthy smells good. And that which is unhealthy and harmful smells bad. Metaphorically speaking, our Lord Jesus has the most beautiful fragrance of all. Jesus means life and salvation and forgiveness and hope. So his fragrance is sweet and savory for those who are being saved. But this is not everyone. For those who are perishing, Jesus means death and doom and condemnation. And so for them, the fragrance of Jesus seems foul and putrid. This idea is the background or the foundation upon which the things that Paul shares in 2 Corinthians 2, 14-17 come from. So let's read the passage. We already uh, spent a little bit of time in part of verse 14. So we're just going to talk about the second part, but we're going to read the whole thing. But thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one a fragrance from death to death to the other a fragrance from life to life. Who is sufficient for these things? For we are not like so many peddlers of God's word, but as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God, in the sight of God, we speak in Christ. So, as we've been going through 2 Corinthians over the last uh, months since the fall, Recently, we've, been reflect, we've seen how Paul reflects upon his unrest that he felt while he was in Troas because he was anxious as he awaited news of how the Corinthians were going to respond to his severe letter. And then as a result of finally hearing the report from Titus that the Corinthians had... Um, welcomed his letter, or at least had, it had produced good fruit in them, he gives thanks to God, who always leads us in triumphal procession in Christ. We talked about that a couple weeks ago. And then this part, and manifest through us the sweet aroma of the knowledge of him in every place. His thanks seem to result from Titus's positive report and the the two things that follow the being led in 
triumphal procession and the manifesting the sweet aroma of Christ, these are both explanations for why the Corinthians positively responded to his letter. In other words, they they responded to his letter positive because of two things. Number one, because God shows his power through the weakness of his people. And once again, God has granted Paul success in spite of his weakness and frailty. And then number two, the Corinthians took Paul's exhortation to heart because those who bear the fragrance of Christ will in the end be received by those who are being saved. Since Paul truly bore the scent of Christ, and since the Corinthians truly had through the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit, a nose for the aroma of Christ. There was a certain inevitability that they would sense Christ in the words and life of Paul. I'd like to bring out four lessons that we can learn from this passage. The first one is this. There are only two kinds of people in the world. I know you've heard many, there are only two kinds of people jokes. But here we see in this passage, there are only, indeed, only two kinds of people in the world. He says, those, he refers to them as those who are being saved and those who are perishing. Now there is enormous pressure upon in the world today, in our society, to think of humanity as basically, at its core, one. And, of course, Christians should be all for breaking down human distinctions. But no matter how much we dislike this truth, it is clearly and repeatedly taught in Scripture that Jesus did not come to unite all mankind into one happy family. Though he did come to unite all different kinds of people into one happy family in himself, he came rather to divide mankind into two. He says this over and over again. For instance, in Matthew 10, Do not think that I came to bring peace on the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. And there, he's not referring to a sword like a sword in warfare. He's talking about a sword as something that cuts something in two. I came to bring a sword, he said. For I came to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a man's enemies will be the members of his own household. And then, in another place, he describes the end of history. He says, when the Son of Man comes in his glory, he will sit on his glorious throne, and all the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate them one from another, as the shepherd separates the sheep and the goats. He will put the sheep on its right, and the goats on his left. And then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. 
And then he will say to those on the left, Depart from me, you cursed for the, in the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. So again, you see the Son of Man himself, Jesus, being the divider of humanity into two groups. Of course, sometimes we can't tell which group a person is in. But we know that every person is on a path, either to eternal judgment or to eternal salvation. Now, a person can change paths, of course, or none of us would be saved, since we were born children of wrath, as it says in Ephesians 2.3. But each man is on one of two paths, heading for two eternal destinies. And when we appear before Christ on the last day, there will be no purgatory, or second chance, or third option. Never on earth, never in history, has there lived a man who is so loved and yet so hated as Christ Jesus. He is the most loved man in human history. Thousands have willingly lost their lives for him. Hundreds of millions have devoted their lives to his service and his worship. Millions of people, hundreds of millions of people, perhaps billions have gathered to adore him, seek him, listen to him. And yet he has more enemies than any other man. From the very beginning, even when he was a baby, they tried to kill him. And in the end, though an innocent man, they savagely crucified him like a criminal. And that spirit continues to this day. There is no person today that, that is the object of more animosity than Jesus Christ. Even in our society, which you know, has, has had such a Christian presence in its history. We see how Jesus has divided mankind into two groups. Those who love him, those who hate him, those who are perishing, those who are being saved. And by receiving Jesus, by opposing Jesus, we sort of show what's inside of us. We expose what's deep down in our hearts. What we think of God. What is our true nature? And each one of us, of course, has to decide which side are we on. For there is no neutrality. Jesus is either a building block, a cornerstone, or a stumbling block. You either rise up because of him or you fall down because of him. Every man is either for him or against him, as Jesus himself said. But the amazing thing, of course, is not that Jesus divides mankind. The amazing thing is that he doesn't leave mankind united in his sin and under the judgment of God. But instead he came and he died in order that there might be an escape 
from his judgment. Amazingly, he loved us even when we hated him. And he came to die for our sins. So there are two kinds of humanity. The second principle, the second lesson we can derive from this passage, is that God's people smell like Jesus. God has anointed his people with the same fragrant anointment of the Spirit that came upon Jesus. And so God's children have the aroma of Jesus. That's what Paul's saying here. But of course everyone is not a fan of this smell. Those who are attracted to Christ, those who have been given a taste for the Spirit, find it a pleasing fragrance, a fragrance of life, Paul says here. But to those who find Christ repulsive, our aroma as Christians is similarly repulsive. Those who are being saved, to them we smell like life. To those who are perishing, we smell like death. Everywhere we go, we carry this sweet scent, the sweet aroma of Jesus Christ. But it isn't just other people who smell the scent of Christ upon us. He, Paul says we are the aroma of Christ to God. This sweet aroma of Christ born by believers also rises up as a pleasing fragrance to God. We've all experienced an aroma that suddenly overtakes us. That something is so wonderful that it, like, it stops us thinking about what we're thinking about and we start thinking about where's that smell coming from. Usually it's food for me. I don't know about for you. Well, I think this gives us a little taste of what it's like for the Lord when he smells from heaven the splendid fragrance of his beloved son upon his people. Most of the smells which arise up to his heavenly nostrils from the earth are foul. But what a blessing to him. What a breath of fresh air. What a fragrant aroma is to him when he smells Christ upon his beloved people. For Christ is the one who ultimately produces every truly pleasing fragrance to God. Ephesians 5.2 Christ loved you and gave himself up for us as an offering and a sacrifice of God as a fragrant aroma. And in particular, how pleasing to the Father is the sacrifice of his Son. It is for us like a deodorizer that takes away the stench of our sin and replaces it with the most wonderful scent ever smelled. So that when God smells those who are in Christ, he no longer smells our sin, but only the lovely fragrance of his beloved Son. And so it's no wonder that Paul asks, after talking about this, who is adequate for this? Who is adequate to bear this precious fragrance? Of course, none of us are. And yet God has chosen for this treasure 
to reside in earthen vessels, as he will go on to say two chapters from now. To let his power shine through our weakness, so that it will be clear that it comes not from us, but from God. It's not the smell of us, you see. That would stink. It is Christ who through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. The third of the four lessons is that in spite of God's delight in us, the world thinks we stink. Jesus himself said, if the world hates you, you know how it has hated me before it hated you. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. So why does the world hate Jesus so much? Well, Jesus himself answers the question in John 7, 7. It hates me because I testify of it that its deeds are evil. He gives the same answer in John 3. We're not sure if these are the words of Jesus or John, but the answer is given again in John 3, 19 and 20. This is the judgment, that the light has come into the world, and men love the darkness rather than the light, for their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light, and doesn't come to the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. This is basically the same thing Paul is saying here in 2 Corinthians 2.16. When he says that those who are perishing, to them we are an aroma of death. This is why Christians smell like death to those who are running from Jesus. We, Christians remind them of their impending eternal death which they dread and don't want to think about. And so they often lash out and attack those who remind them of it. Now the fact is that this isn't the only reason that non-Christians think that Christians stink. Sometimes it's because of our arrogance and our obnoxiousness and our hypocrisy and our self-righteousness. But even if we were perfectly Christ-like, we would still bear the stench of death to those who are fleeing from Christ. How sad is it that men flee their creator, that men flee from the one who offers them life and hope and forgiveness. How sad it is that men despise the very people who could offer them hope. It's hard to be found disgusting. It's especially hard when people you love find you disgusting because they're repulsed by the fragrance of Christ in you. And that brings temptations. And one of the temptations that that brings is that it, it tends to change us, change our lives, even make us 
less Christian in the way that we live. Let me explain. You see, we're susceptible to feedback. And that's often good, but it can be bad. Sometimes people, when they react to us with disgust, we have motivation without even thinking about it sometimes to change what we're doing so that people aren't so disgusted. And that's often fine. But when it comes to people reacting to us with disgust because of Christ, then we shouldn't want to change that. Instead, we should remember the words of Jesus in Matthew 5 when he said, Blessed are you when men revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. This is why we can't base who we are on what others think we should be. Especially those who are outside of Christ. We need to strive to be like Christ. And if that means people hate us, think we're disgusting then so be it. We love them nonetheless, even when they hate us. But we don't change so that they will love us. The fourth and final lesson that I'd like to draw from this passage is from the last verse, verse 16. And the lesson is this. There are counterfeit Christian leaders around. And the verse says, For we are not like so many peddlers of God's word, but as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God, in the sight of God, we speak in Christ. As one bearing the aroma of Christ, Paul contrasts himself with those who use the gospel as a way of gaining power and wealth. He mentions them often in this letter of 2 Corinthians. He says in chapter 4 that they adulterate the word of God. In chapter 11 he says they preach another Jesus and, they, and a different gospel. He talks about them as motivated by lust for material gain. Contrasting them with himself since he had served the Corinthians without accepting any money from them. Partly to set himself apart from these others who were motivated by money. This verse reminds us that there are those who preach the gospel not for the glory of Christ, but for their own advantage. Those not mindful of this, of course, can easily fall prey to these wolves in shepherd's clothing. Speaking in the name of God gives a person a lot of power. And power can be used to take advantage of other people instead of to help other people. And so God's people must beware that there are just because you have the label Christian leader or preacher or teacher, that doesn't mean that you're not 
a phony, motivated by earthly things. Of course, you can also take this too far. This verse also reminds us that there are those who preach from sincerity, whose preaching is as commissioned by God, who speak in Christ, who conduct themselves in the sight of God. All phrases from this verse. It is wise to be careful. There are many phonies out there. Satan loves to use counterfeits to trip us up. But we must also be careful not to punish the sincere because of our experience with or our fear of phonies. Instead, we need to praise God that he raises up men and women of sincerity who don't adulterate the word of God, but work hard to proclaim it accurately and soundly. This brings us to the end of chapter 2. And next week we'll head into chapter 3, but I want to remind you of something I said about chapter 3. Chapter 3 is a very difficult chapter. And uh, it's really the most difficult in all of 2 Corinthians. And so I would ask your prayers as I work to uh, study it, figure it out, try to figure it out, and, and find ways to explain it and make it applicable to you all over the next month or so. Thank you for your prayers. Let us come now to the table of our Lord. Dear Heavenly Father, we are such blessed people. It's amazing, O oh Lord, how you have shed your love upon us in Christ. And now, dear Lord, as, as broken, needy, helpless people, we come to you with joy, knowing that like a father has compassion on his children, so you have compassion on those who fear you. And dear Lord, we thank you that you want to take us into your arms and embrace us in your love. And that you have done this, O oh Lord, by giving us this privilege of coming to the Lord's Supper. Where we are reminded of the great act of love that you have performed by sending your son to die for our sins upon the cross. We thank you, O oh Lord, that because of this, we can stand before you counted innocent because of Christ and that we can clothe ourselves in the robe of his righteousness. Oh Lord, none of us is worthy of this, but we praise you that you have bestowed it upon us. Now allow us, oh Lord, with proper sense of awe and wonder to receive these, this gift, this reminder in the Lord's Supper of what we have been given. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.